Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is Gabrielle Seville, a poet, a performance artist, author, and professor. We talk about art, and life, and so many books, in addition to both of Gabrielle's amazing books, Swallow the Fish and Experiments in Joy. But before we get to that, just a reminder to get your book recommendations from the stacks. Send us an email with your name, what you're looking for, what books you've liked and not liked, and we'll give you some personalized book recommendations on air. Just email askingthestacks at gmail.com. If you like the show and want to support the work we're doing here, go to patreon.com slash the stacks. Patreon allows for people like me to make podcasts like this with the help of people like you. It's easy and you earn perks like our virtual book club, priority for Ask the Stacks, and more. To join, go to patreon.com slash the stacks. And a special thank you to Janine Owens for being a loyal lover of this show and a member of the Stacks Pack. If a monthly contribution doesn't work for you, consider one-time contributions at paypal.me slash the stacks pod. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to help us reach new audiences and book exciting guests. Here's a review from Monte SJ2. I absolutely love listening to the stacks. Great guests, great discussions, and great book recommendations. Thank you to Tracy. My TBR is forever expanding. Love, love. Thank you so much, Monte SJ2. Everyone else, please leave us a review if you haven't done so yet. Okay, let's dive into our conversation with the amazing and delightful and insanely well-read Gabrielle Seville. All right, y'all. Today, our guest is Gabrielle Seville. Gabrielle is a Black feminist performance artist and the author of two performance memoirs. One, her first is Swallow the Fish, and her latest book is Experiments in Joy. Gabrielle is also a teacher of creative writing and critical studies at California Institute of the Arts. Gabrielle, welcome to the sax. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy you're here. Honestly, the introduction is the hardest part for me. Now we can just like hang out and chat. That's it. (laughs) Let's do it. So I know um, I know a little bit about you because I've been stalking you, but why don't you tell the folks at home a little bit about yourself besides your professional breakdown that I just gave? Well, let's see. I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, the best city in the entire country. <laughs> um, certainly a really wonderful city for a person who's interested in Black culture, music, and also thinking through 
kind of what thinking through how a world can be re-envisioned. I mean, I think I grew up at a time when the city was going through a lot of changes and trying to reconcile the difference between the ways that people were talking about a place and the ways that I lived and experienced and knew a place. I think that became very helpful for me Mm. in the work that I do. Um, I was first trained as a poet and I love, love, love poetry. And I think that these performance memoirs have really poetry as a kind of spine or the way that I put my experiences together really comes from my experience with poetry. And then I moved um, from Detroit. I went to school at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I studied in France during that time. So that became important. And that connected me on some level to my Haitian heritage um, in the sense that my father, who was a French high school Spanish and high school French and Spanish teacher. I was going to say, how are you a high school French? I know a high school (laughs) French teacher, but yeah, he was a, he's a teacher in high school, both French and Spanish and really had a deep love for Paris and Mm. French literature and culture and all these things. But of course he had never been to Paris. And so there were a lot of interesting things for me in terms of going to this place that, um, had been brought to my father really through colonialism, right? And then studying there and then having my whole family come and visit me there. Mm. And I could just see that there was a kind of circle that was being closed for him. And that was an interesting thing. What was it like for him? Like, what did he say about finally being there? Oh, he was delighted. Yeah, And he was also, I mean, he's self-aware enough to recognize that the stories that they told about France, like, oh, to the little Haitian children, you know, France is the best place on earth and Paris is the, you know, that I think that he was self-aware enough to recognize that that was a strategy to have people not feeling so great about themselves. And also just to have been a little Haitian boy and be told that there were all these places in the world and finally in his life to be able to come and see those places for himself. I think that was fabulous. And you know, my mother, my father, my sister, and I, we ate a lot of croissants. Mm-hmm. As know, one we drank does. wine. <laughs> we went to the Tour Eiffel. You know, we did the whole thing. Mm. And so that was an exciting part. And after I graduated from undergrad, I moved to New York yes. and did graduate work in comparative literature um, at NYU, as yes. I know that yes. we share we that share alma mater. That. That's right. But you did something way fancier. You got your PhD there. I did. I got my master's and my PhD in comparative literature and also. While I was doing that very good girl thing, I was running all around and (laughs) learning how to be a performance artist and think and becoming an artist and trying to understand about dissemination projects and conceptual art projects and infiltration and hanging out with Madhua H. Kaza and Rosamades King in this collective called Number One Gold that I talk about a little bit in Swallow the Fish and that I actually include some text and some reflection on that text in this new book, Experiments in Joy. That was a very magical and important time in my life in my early 20s, you know, just trying to understand who I was and what kind of life that I could have. And I feel so thankful that there was no social media Mm -hmm. and there was no Internet. There was all this anonymity (laughs) so that you could just try on these different possibilities and without pressure or visibility. Right. And just go dancing every night, (laughs) every night in a week. Yeah, just be... 20 in New York. That's it. Because that's like a thing that, mm. I mean, 
uh, that is my greatest thing. You know, I've done other things with my life, but there's always New York is like such a part of who I am because I was in my 20s when I was there. Like just the time and the place coincided to make me not so shy, make me not so nervous, like Mm -hmm. things that and, you know, I was a theater major. So similarly exploring these like corners of performance that you just might not get if you're if you're a performer in anywhere else, right? Like that there's something New York offers culturally and then also performance wise that's really like exciting and it's makes you feel like dynamic. you're safe. Yeah, because you can do things because you see other people doing things that you're like, that's crazy. My little thing is okay. Like I'm okay. And maybe like that you're not so much of an imposter, or, like that there's space for your work. Like it's nurturing, even though it's also intimidating and terrifying as a 22 year old or something, right? Like both things. Both things. And I think that idea about space is important as well, and that there's space for you in part because of the street culture and the visibility that mm-hmm. there's all of these people that are together and you see them. Mm-hmm. I only mention that because I, you know, I really just moved to LA and. I think that what's intimidating for me here is, is at least in the neighborhoods where I am, there's not as much street culture. I don't see people walking on the mm-hmm. street. I'm not. Ta- I mean, I'll, I am. You know, I'll take the bus in LA for sure mm-hmm. because driving for me is pretty stressful. I had a car accident <laughs> oh, no. last year that oh, no. that um, really changed my relationship to driving, and so I'm coming back to feeling more confident. But that was the biggest stress. I was so delighted to get this job at CalArts, but I thought, uh-oh, I'm going to be living in L.A., and, you know, th- that's going to be a lot of freeways, that's going to be a lot of traffic, that's going to be a lot of sprawl. I, I wonder if I'm going to be able to do it. And so um, I've been working it out, but I also recognize that I, I need to build community and find ways to feel space, like there's space for me and what I do here, because it isn't as visible. Right. You know, it's you don't just look outside the window and see people. I mean, I see performance art in New York City every day, mm-hmm. just looking out the window. Mm-hmm. On the subway? On the subway, on the sidewalk, on the bus, you know. So, but I mean, here I see mountains right. and I see sky. I yeah. see incredibly beautiful flowers and landscapes. And there are different neighborhoods full of amazing culture. So, I'm not trying to hate on LA, and no. that's not it. I'm happy to be here, but I'm I, I'm I'm really a deeply Midwestern person. That's what I've come to understand, and I think these books that I've written, I think one thing that they do is really show that there's a lot popping in the middle of the country, mm-hmm. and that it isn't just flyover country, and that actually. I mean, so much of the work that's featured in these books, it's Minnesota, it's Ohio, um, it's its its just pockets. Or I think about the piece Hewn and Forge about books, that's Salt Lake City, Utah. Mm. So it's just, it's about manifesting and creating right. that possibility. And it is true that that first was ignited for me, I guess I would say first in Detroit in my life, and then having a chance to leave my small kind of life and go out into Europe and then travel there to Spain and to Italy and the Czech Republic and all these places. And before that, of course, I had gone to Haiti and visited my family. And so I had that experience, which was really important for me and still is a big inspiration. So I think that all of that, that then allowed me to come to New York, 
really soak it up and then live in all these other places and feel like, hey, wait, you know, we can light it up here. We don't have to be on a coast to make it happen. Totally. So let me ask you this. You go, what did you study for undergrad? So undergrad, I triple majored because that was the kind of person I was. Because I was an overachiever. This is a safe space for people like us. I know, and there's <laughs> something about these like black girls who are really smart, and they think that um, the way to have value is to achieve. That's right. To way the way to be loved is mm-hmm. to excel. Have you read so, Michelle Obama's book yet? I haven't, but it is on my list. I'm listening to it right now, and she talks about that from the beginning. And I just finished reading Thick by Tressie McMillan Cottom. Uh-huh. And she talks about it too. She's a professor at uh, VCU. And so that's real talk. I have to say, I mean, so many of my friends, or have you read Nell Irvin Painters or I guess I have Nell no- Painters is this book. Uh, old in art school. I have not read it, but you actually told me about it. When we were trying to decide what we were going to do, you mentioned it and I added it to the list. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole, that's, I just think it's amazing how many generations of incredibly, exceptionally accomplished Mm -hmm. black women started off as these overachieving black girls. Mm -hmm. And I definitely honor and appreciate our excellence. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know what? It's okay to believe that you don't have to be perfect in order to have value. That's right. So, but in undergrad, I mean, part of why I I majored in so many things is because I loved these things. I, um, (laughs) I had an undergraduate major in comparative literature in French and then in English with a concentration in creative writing, focusing especially on poetry. And I did two honors theses. One was a creative thesis, a manuscript in poetry. And then one was a critical, um, Exploration of the poetry of Rita Dove. Wow. Yeah. So let me ask you this then. So then you go to do your master's and PhD together at NYU uh, uh-huh. in create or comparative literature. Right. And then how did you decide, oh, actually I want to perform? Oh, okay. Because this is the thing that is really, I think, essential to me. I always identified as an artist. Okay. And I always felt that an artist was as much about what you made as it was about how you lived or how you saw the world. Mm. And I felt that I didn't have a natural aptitude for drawing or painting, but there was something around images that was important to me. And I started to think about ways of creating images and language that was in writing And then I started thinking about ways to manifest those images in the world. And specifically through the actions of my body. And that's how I started becoming a performance artist in some ways. You know, in Swallow the Fish, I talk about a piece that I did when I was turning 25 called 25 Targets. And I went to big lots and got these hunting targets and got some green paint and some stencils and decided that I was going to really articulate for myself what are 25 things that I want to capture for my 25th year on this earth. Mm. And then I stenciled a word or phrase for each one of those 25 things on these different targets, 25 targets, and then I taped them all up around town. And at that time I had a fellowship in Athens, Ohio, See, Ohio has, I could have a whole book just on Ohio, but anyway. And it was amazing just to walk through this space and to see the traces of my own 
kind of creativity in the world. Mm. But what I realized is that something was missing and that that text was a trace of something that had happened. And what had happened was my body moving that language through space and placing it there. And that for me was really important in terms of thinking of myself, especially as a performance artist. Right, that you needed to be a part of the target. It couldn't just be on its own. Right, that the target was actually an artifact of something that had already happened, which was me Mm -hmm. moving Mm -hmm. it and making it. And that I didn't have to be invisible in that, that that was okay. And in fact, maybe was important for me to make my body and to, and to really recognize the power of that. Although it's true in New York City, really the work that we did, um, Rosamond S. King, Mother H. Kaza and I, really the play that we did, because the work that we did was play, hmm. creating the number one gold collective. We, we identified as artists, but we were not trained as artists. We weren't in art school. And so we decided we were going to train ourselves. <laughs> I love it. And in New York City, the way we did that is we went to all of these amazing places uh, we went to different kinds of shows and performances. We went to different ex- exhibitions. We went to art spaces. We read different books. We wrote each other letters. We talked through different kinds of projects. And we kind of made that happen for ourselves. And looking back, I mean, it was just the 20th anniversary of a number one gold project called the Gold Leaf Project, where we wrapped over 10,000 poems in gold leaf and then mm. just distributed them in all five boroughs of New York City on one day, just wow. three of us. We just had these bags and we just did this thing. Oh my God. You know, I mean, it was sort of like, who were we yeah. to think that we would even do this? That was the thing that I thought was kind of amazing, the kind of permission right. that we gave ourselves just to be in the world and <sighs> proclaiming what was important to us and trying to capture and become the people and, and artists that we were meant to be. It's pretty, it's, I look back and I think like, wow, we were so hungry. Right. We and like so bold. thirsty. Yeah. We wanted it. And yeah. so now, now I feel amazed and happy. We're, we're living our dreams. Right. Ugh, I love it. Okay. I want to talk about your book. Yes. Experiments and Joy. That's your newest book. It just came out this year. Yes. So you don't know this about me, but I knew that I, so I had reached out to Jack Jones Literary Arts and I was like, oh, you know, I want someone on the show. And then they sent me like a list. And so I started like Googling and I saw Experiments and Joy. And I was like, that's the person because Joy is my favorite word. Mm. I just love Joy. And every time my OBGYN, her name is Joy. So I was like, we can be friends. Like you can look inside of me. But it's like, that's like the word for me that I'm like, that's a sign. If the word joy comes up, like I'm like, that is, you know, and I'm not super religious or I don't really believe in signs, but the word joy always makes me feel really happy. So that's a long way of saying the title, love, <laughs> love, love, love. But why, why was it? I mean, I, I read the book and I read about the, the, um, was it in Denison, Ohio? So this project happened in Yellow Springs, Ohio, Ohio at okay. Antioch College. And but yes. but then I know why you said Denison because I was recently I recently had a fellowship at Denison. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was like, I know it's in Ohio. So you brought together a group of black women performance artists. Right. And it was like a call and response. Yeah. Where you guys you got, got together, you talked and worked together, and then you kind of left. And you created the art and then you came back mm-hmm. and you performed it and workshopped it and showed it off at, at the college. And they kind of gave you this permission to do it. And so, which it sounds like 
a literal dream for an artist to be mm. like, you can call all your friends and all the people that excite you and inspire you. You can work on something together. Then you can go away and you can come back and you can do it and people will watch you and will support you. So why did you name the book after that particular Aha. piece? Because there's a bunch of other pieces. I guess, oh, I should backtrack really quickly. What is a performance memoir? Like ah, what? Because I've never heard of this term. So we're going to backtrack it. Then we're going to talk about why the title. <laughs> okay. So these are all really great questions. Um, so one thing that has been amazing for me is the relationship between performance art and writing. Mm. So I had more formal training in writing. I didn't have formal training in performance, although I was always finding workshops and studying in intensives and doing things. But my formal academic training is in writing. And yet, as I was making this performance work, I started to realize that the performances that I was doing, maybe because of the, my training, but I think it was more than that, too. I started to understand the actual act of making a performance as a kind of writing, a kind of articulation, mm -hmm. a body writing, a writing of the body. And then I was thinking about writing and the writing that I do as a kind of performance and recognizing about the ways that my language was moving and doing different things. It wasn't just kind of explaining or communicating, but there was a lot of playfulness mm -hmm. um, and you could really trace different versions of things and the different ways that I was, would be talking about my life or conjuring images and experiences. So for me, um, a memoir and performance art or a performance memoir is both in my case a chronicle of my kind of coming of age and practice as a black feminist performance artist, but also a text that is about my own life. So it's a memoir, but it, it performs my life in a way that's more than just telling a straightforward story. Right. So that means that it's a much more hybrid text than what my might normally think of as a memoir, although just at CalArts last semester, I taught an awesome class, and it was awesome because my students were awesome, mm -hmm. um, called Juicy Memoir. And we mm. read all these different kinds of memoirs. We read Rigoberto Gonzalez. We read Janet Mock. We read Khadijah Queen's I'm So Fine as a Juicy mm. Memoir. Um, we read a lot of... So I, one of the things I wanted to say to the students is that a memoir, the way that you tell powerful experiences in your life can have so many different forms. Right. And that my performance memoirs really integrate performance text, um, transcriptions or scripts or scores from performance work that I've done, writing around those performances, and that, and that that then can get interspersed with poems, with essays, mm. uh, conversations, letters, especially experiments in joy, more so than Swell the Fish. Although Swell the Fish is definitely a dynamic kind of hybrid text mm -hmm. with a lot of juicy things in it. But the focus of experiments in joy is really collaborations and solos. So you have a lot of letter exchanges yes, and I conversations. Love. Those and letters, those juicy letters. The letters. <laughs> And, it's, and it really does tie to your question about joy, because as I was proofing the book and going through versions of it, I, I sort of, especially with the letters uh, with Seta Elliott, who's a dear friend and also an incredible writer of um, children's books and books for young adults and speculative um, mm -hmm. science fiction, often magic fantasy, those letters 
are so emotionally intense. I wondered why, why did I call this book joy? I thought, you know, this is, this is so fraught. And there were moments that were so sad or things where we were talking about loss or heartbreak Mm -hmm. or the letter exchanges with, with Mo Lionel in terms of um, failed romance or trying to talk about the way that you loved someone so deeply and were inside of this love affair that then didn't work. Right. And trying to, and how writing and performing together was so central to mm-hmm. that relationship. And then even after that phase, the romantic phase of the relationship is over, trying to think through, okay, how can we be together? What what can right. this be? Right, you know? right. Oh my gosh. And so those things for me actually connected to the heart of Experiments in Joy, the way that the artists who came to Yellow Springs, Ohio. And it's funny because we were not all friends beforehand. In fact, I had not, I was the one bringing everyone together and I hadn't even met everyone. Yeah, you said that in the book. It was wild. And just, (laughs) but we really, we went deep with each other. And we went deep through play. Yeah. We laughed and we had meals and we we jumped rope and we walked and you know had cocktails and talked through what was really vibrating for us. And the reality is that some of the stuff that was vibrating for us was hard. Sure. And so the opportunity to tell the truth to other people and have them hold that 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 was a kind of seed for joy, Mm. that joy can be happiness Mm -hmm. and that joy can also be an opportunity to share sadness or can come from being present in the reality of your life. And that, I think, for us was a kind of black feminist joy that I felt suffused all of the projects and even the opportunity or the idea of trying to make a performance work, of trying to write a poem, those performances, those poems, they themselves are experiments in joy. Right, right. So that became a way to try to think through a larger practice of bringing people together, trying to collaborate, trying to build relationship, thinking mm-hmm. about friendships as, and, lo- and love affairs as themselves experiments in joy, attempts to come together and come to a higher state of knowledge and connection and and support and pleasure and playfulness. Mm-hmm. So that became a way to frame all, all of the book. So in the book, you chronicle some of your many performance pieces. Mm-hmm. And one of my big questions is, how do you, how does your audience who's seeing these pieces before your book ever comes out right how do they connect with you and get the context that is like explicitly stated in the book cuz i'm as i'm reading the book i'm like oh i get it and then i read the text of the performance or the transcript and i'm like oh that was informed by this letter or this thing but how the audience just doesn't have that and so mm-hmm. that's just in the performance then and is that information not as important to you as far as like the actual piece. Do you get what I'm kind of getting at? It's such a good question, actually, because you're really putting your finger on the differences between live art and action and then performance text, performance memoir, where so much is contextualized through narrative. 
so that you get a before, a during, and an after mm-hmm. in this book. Whereas what I'm hearing you say is that when you come, let's say, to a performance, especially if you've never seen any of my work before, right. or maybe if you haven't seen performance art, if you're not a big performance art aficionado or it's right. a new form for you, and you might be like, how do I even make meaning of this? Correct. Wow. And it's so, okay, so I'm going to- Which also kind of connects to next week when we talk about poetry. Yes. Which we'll get to. It absolutely connects. But it does connect to that if you're not a performance art person, quote unquote, or a poetry person, like how do you come to the references in the piece if you don't, if you haven't read the memoir, if you're not familiar with whatever's being referenced? Yes. It definitely connects to next week's conversation with Intezaki Shange and also to, to my core identity as a poet and the way that I make these performances because poems are created through figures of speech mm-hmm. and the performance work that I make is created through figures of the body. Okay. And thinking about figurative meaning and images and how we understand an image And I feel as if on some level it's even cinematic. I mean, I just recently saw Jordan Peele's Us Mm -hmm. and just the way that things looked. The look. There wasn't always context, Mm -mm. but meaning was conveyed. And I think that that's one way that a performance art audience and even that a poetry reader or a poetry um, kind of aficionado or participant, we could even say in that Mm -hmm. process, gets it. Because in live performance, what's kind of beautiful for me is that the audience actually helps to contribute to the meaning. Mm -hmm. So it's not even that they're there to suss out what it is that I'm giving them. Together, we co-create what's happening. Mm -hmm. And there's an energy that the audience brings and often the work that I do is interactive mm. or there or there is there isn't a fourth wall and I'm looking directly at someone. And so there's a lot that can be conveyed through gesture, through presence. My own presence in the space can activate something mm. and they can understand through a glance or through a look, through the way that I'm holding an object and activate it. And then if you ask them later how they knew or how they gain the understanding that they gain. They, they, they're not always able to articulate it. They can say, I knew by the way you were standing there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. If they give themselves the permission to make meaning with me in that way. Right. If you come into it with a feeling that you're supposed to know something. Right. Or you're supposed to get something. That can be a block from your intuition allowing you to actually experience and and deeply understand what's happening. Sure. If you think you have to understand it at a rational level as opposed to a spirit level or a body level. So that's one thing I would say. I feel as if so much happens in the threshold and the invitation that's made with a performance and sometimes even with a book. Experiments in Joy ends with something that I call the playlist. And it's a series of questions for people who are trying to make a performance. Mm -hmm. And is your heart open? Is the path clear? Do you know who you most want to be in the room and why? Mm. How have you extended a real invitation to those people to get them there? How Mm -hmm. did the people get there? So even that, the way that the people get there, there's some knowledge of something that got them in the room. 
How can I, as a performance artist, mobilize that knowledge? Mm. And then if I say, and so you've worked in performance and in theater in the past, sometimes there can be these sort of diversity initiatives like, oh, we need to get X kind of people in the room. Mm -hmm. But there's no real relationship with X kind of mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. There's So what is the quality of that invitation? It's sort of like, okay, we're going to open up our doors and say we hope so-and-so is in here. Well, that's not how it works. And people can feel or people tell yeah. if it's not a real invitation. Right. Um, I just went in, went with my mom in Detroit. I was recently um, doing an event at the University of Michigan with this awesome, amazing poet laureate of Detroit named Naomi Long Magic. She's 95 years old wow. and she is doing her thing. I just <laughs> love, want everybody love, love. to know. So I flew back to Detroit and got to spend some time with my family before I went up to Ann Arbor. And while I was in Detroit, my friend Anna Martine Whitehead, who's also a writer, poet, and dancer, she was doing a performance at a place called The Jam Handy. And it was a performance that had to do with prison abolition and tales of kind of incarceration and enslavement. So really light subjects, <laughs> Tracy. I mean, really. And I just said to my mom, do you want to come to this thing with me? And she said, sure. And I gave her all these links. And I was like, okay, well, here's information about it. And just so that you know, she didn't read any of those links. I she, don't ever read those things. She didn't read it. She said, you know what? You said you're going to this thing. Let's go. Mm -hmm. We went. My mom was riveted. Ugh. It was, a, I mean, in the, the piece wasn't linear. It wasn't narrative. There were sections about um, Harriet Jacobs and her kind of time of captivity in the attic. There were things about the prison industrial. I mean, it was vignettes, but Martine's presence was so strong right. and clear. You could have heard a pin drop hmm. in that room. And after it was over, the people in the audience, they didn't want to get up. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. And, and if you were to ask them, what did that mean? I don't know what everyone would say. And I don't know if they'd be in agreement, but something happened. Right. And that's the important thing. That was the thing. And that they were a part of it happening. Right. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. 
If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh my gosh. Okay. We have to change the subject because we are supposed to be talking about books. I know. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. This always happens. I invite people to come on the show and I love them and I've read their work. And then I want to talk to them exclusively about the things that I selfishly want to talk about. And I'm like, I know that people are listening to talk about books. But if you want to talk only about books, make your own podcast. I, <laughs> I love books. And this is actually about books. This is yes, really helpful this is about your book. for my book yeah. if, to understand this. Yeah. I mean, if you are interested in Gabrielle's book, definitely now that you've heard this, it'll make, I'm like, I need to go back and reread sections because it will make more sense for me. Before we jump to that, we have this new segment we're doing called Ask the Stacks. Yeah. So you're the second ever. All right. Number two. What it is, people at home, if you want to be part of this, we're going to give you a book recommendation. Someone has emailed us, Becky. She emailed askingthestacks at gmail.com. She emailed us what she likes, what she's interested in. And I've read over it. I did a little research because this one was hard for me, but Gabrielle hasn't even heard the question. So here we go. Becky says, my favorite genre is science fiction, and I'm currently most excited about Afrofuturism and space uh, space opera. One of my goals for the year is to read at least one book in translation each month. So I would love any recommendations for for a speculative fiction in translation, but if that's too specific, I'm also looking to add women of color authors in science fiction and fantasy to my list. So there's kind of a few options and directions. Do you want to think or do you want me to go and then you could go? Why don't you go first? Because I do have some things coming okay. to mind, but I want to hear what you okay. say. So I came up with two things for you, Becky. And um, as everybody listening knows, I had to do a lot of Googling because like, this is truly the furthest from my wheelhouse science fiction fantasy. So I found Larissa Lai. She is a Chinese, uh, Chinese American Canadian. So she was born in America, but she was raised in Canada, Chinese descent. Her book is the, her book is called when Fox is a thousand. It came out in 2004. It's folklore, fantasy, um, historical and contemporary queer fiction. And she also wrote a book called Saltfish Girl, which is kind of in a similar sounding vibe. Um, and this is speculative fiction, but it's not in translation. Now, my other book for you, and now of course I can't read her name. 
Oh, Dana Sharivo, Shivano. My R and V look the same, but the book is called The Island of Eternal Love. It's she's Cuban. Came out in 2013. Mm. It's in translation. It sounds like a time, or it's a time travel through Cuba's past, and it's about family and longing and loss. And it takes place with the main character having an older relative that keeps coming to her when she goes to this restaurant. I don't know. It sounded kind of good. It came out in 2013. Again, it's called The Island of Eternal Love. So those are my two picks for you. I don't know, though, because I haven't read them. So <laughs> Those are awesome picks, Don't they though? sound kind of cool and weird really and great. I'm totally I'm jotting it. them down so I can okay. check them out, too. Becky. And they'll all be in the show notes, everybody. So easy. Well, first of all, I've, I love that question because it's first... It's trying to decenter books in English. Mm-hmm. You know what? I've studied comparative literature. I love world literature. I've been working on a translation for a long time. And so you go reading translated books. I love it. <laughs> um, and also, there is so much amazing kind of Afrofuturist and um, black speculative, black sci fi. I mean, and I understand too that black sci fi and black speculative aren't the same thing or black fantasy. So if these don't exactly hit, hit the mark, um, they might not be, you know, they might be one or the other. But I think I haven't read this book, but have you heard? I'm sure um, Tomi Adeyemi's mm-hmm. "Children of Blood and Bone." Mm-hmm. So this is a local. I mean, this is not an international text, yeah. but I, but people have been telling me that it's amazing. I have it. I haven't read it, but her new book cover just came out like last week or this week. Oh wow! And so I think it's that a trilogy. I think it's going to be a bunch of people are going to be staying at home from work. I know that. <laughs> I know. And then Marlon James has a new book that yeah. just came out, and. I think is it called Black Leopard, Red, Red Wolf. Wolf. And yeah. that also has some type of um, fantastical elements, yeah. but maybe more. I mean, one thing, too, at least in the Afro diasporic context, some some things that are called speculative or even fantasy they are magically real, magical realism. They really are almost like spirit work or mm-hmm. cultural practice. Mm-hmm. And so it, it depends on if you want it to really seem space opera um, kind of Star Warsy, or if it's okay that it's grounded in other kinds of mythologies. To that extent, I would recommend work by Nalo Hopkinson, um, Tenerife Du, of course, the the master of all masters, Octavia Butler, mm-hmm. and then my dear friend Zeta Elliot, who I did this big letter exchange in my book. She has written um, a number of books, including. Uh, a Wish After Midnight, which is about a girl who ends up sucked back into slavery. Mm. So those who've read Kindred know that kind of mm-hmm. time travel plot. But this story is very different. Interesting. Um, I knew you'd be good at this. <laughs> well, now, internationally, I'm just trying to think. I mean, right now, one of the books that I'm reading is called Sphinx by Angarita. And um, I mean, I read a lot of books that are translated, although I don't always read um, enough, I guess, sci-fi that's been translated. So that's something. I wonder if there's a text called The Bridge of Beyond um, by Simon Schwartz-Bart, if there's some 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 elements there that might be kind of sci-fi-ish. But even if they aren't, I know that Simon Schwartz-Bart is a really incredible French-Caribbean writer. And um, yeah, there might be more. I'll send... I'll send Tracy an email if I have more suggestions to add to the show notes. Becky, you got so many good recs. You're so lucky. (laughs) Okay. 
Gabrielle, now yes. it's time for you to answer all my book questions. We're yes. going to start where we always start. Two books you love and one book you hate. Okay. So I love Maud Martha by Gwendolyn Brooks. And it was hard to narrow this down because there's so many books that I love. But you know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to take it in a different direction here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lift up My Name is Asher Lev by <gasps> Haim Potok. Oh, my gosh. And you're not the first person to say that book. I know that I love My Name is Asher Lev. I've I never really read do. it. I admitted this when a friend did this on the show. And my mother is Jewish. Uh-huh. And my, all of my Jewish friends are like, you've never read that? I was like, whoa, I've never even heard of it. You know, later, you're going to ask a question about, like, where do you see yourself reflected? Uh And maybe it's because when I was growing up, there really was not this boom of, you know, like, black girls in literature. Right. So if you asked me, like, where did you see yourself reflected? I'd be like, my name is Asher Lev. Interesting. Yeah. Or Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. What about hate? You know, I can't talk about my kin like that. I love books too much. (laughs) A book that I hate, I don't, I just... Let me modify. What about what's the last book you picked up that you just couldn't get through? Which doesn't mean that the book is bad. It just means that it wasn't for you in that moment. Well, I would say I've been reading War and Peace for Mm. about 15 years, (laughs) but I still have it with me. Um, And a book that a book that I admired the writing of, but that I didn't move through, probably was Marlon James's book about Bob Marley, A History of Seven Killings. I did read that. I mean, and I think he's an exceptional writer, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason, in the moment that I was in, I think that that's a book that you might gobble up, like in a fever dream, almost mm-hmm. like Proust or something. The large, large tomes... I think you have to be in a certain kind of space. You got to be locked in. Yeah, I mean, how did you feel about that book? I had a really hard time with the dialects. Mm-hmm. It was I, I struggled with it because it was hard for me to connect to who was talking. Like sometimes I'd be like, "Wait, what are they saying? Let me go." Like when I read, sometimes I just like go. Like my eyes are just going. And if I have as as a performer, a lot of times, like when I don't understand something, I'll read it out loud. Right. And I was getting stuck because I couldn't. I didn't like the way that it sounded out loud right. to me because I don't have a Jamaican accent. And so I was like, you're terrible. This sounds terrible. This, So it was harder for me. But then once I got going, once I got maybe like two thirds into the book, I probably finished the last third in like a day. No, I've heard that. And, you know, I'm a fan of Marlon James. I mean, he lived in, in Minnesota. I think he still lives in St. Paul. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to that's a book that I feel like I'm going to go back to. But that's an example of, I think. Sometimes it's just not the right time. Yeah, Certain I'm books, they come believer. to you yeah. at the right time. So yeah. that would be an example of that. Okay. And what about a book like from your childhood or a book that like really got you into reading? Okay. So I, my mother <laughs> will not forgive me if I don't say that she read me cloth books and mm-hmm. she read me books in the womb and that, mm. that, and that my love of reading comes from, from that, <laughs> you know? And it's funny because she just recently ran into my kindergarten teacher mm. And in kindergarten, we had um, like a, a reading contest for the whole year. So it was to, you know, encourage us little kids to read. Right. And, and I just knew that I was going to win that contest. This was something that I had decided. And I did win. And I won 100. I read 105 books wow. that year. And I still have right here in Southern California the certificate oh that Mrs. Nowash signed, my my teacher, she wow. signed it. And my mother ran into her. And so um, I just want to say, 
what's the book that got you into reading? My mother says all the cloth books she read, and then I am going to lift up the the reading challenge, the reading contest with one hundred. Do you still respond to reading goals? Like, do you set reading goals for yourself? I think that right now, what I'm trying to do is make sure to read the books that most of the books that I have before getting new books, that's Mm, a goal. So hard. And a major goal for me is to support indie presses and indie bookstores. What are some of your favorite indie presses? Well, my press, the accomplices, I have to shout them up. That's That's really great. I think Nightboat is an amazing press. I know Rosamond is King, who I mentioned before, her book is on there. Um, I think that Coffee House mm. and Grey Wolf. So good. So I think good. those are amazing. But also Dorothy Project, um, Dalky Archive. There's so many. There's so many. There's so many. And I think um, because even in a even in an indie bookstore, often publishers have to pay to get a book on a table. Mm. It can be hard to know. But if you just go to small press distribution and get on their mailing list, that is a big way that I find out about new books. Like there's a novel by Nabil Fares um, about James Baldwin. I found out about that just, just through the new, the e-letter that comes every, and it is so juicy. And in fact, people, I'm a book fool. I love books so much. I can't even tell you there are books stacked (laughs) everywhere in my house. So I had to get, I had to, I had, um, you know, some people had dryuary. I had, I guess, dreburyary in February. I just said, no booze. And no buying any new books until I finish reading all the wonderful books I got for Christmas. Yeah. Yes. I so in January, um, one of our one of our members of our stacks pack, Allison, her partner for her birthday, which is in January, was like, she was like, What do you want for your birthday? And she said, I want you to not check anything out of the library and I want you to not buy any new books and I want you to read the books that you have in the house. And so Allison opened up the challenge to people on Instagram and it was called Baby Got Backlist. Mm. And I did nine. I did nine books in January, nothing purchased. And I know a lot of people did. So Baby Got Backlist was a thing that was for Allison's partner, but it ended up really being like for all of us. Let's do it again. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I need to do Baby Got Backlist like every single day. I love Baby Got Backlist. It's That's good, beautiful. Right? It's so good. Also because it's like shopping in your own closet. It is. And there's so like, I have so many good books here and I just, it's like, I feel like overwhelmed by it's like plenty it's like the what are they it's like the curse of plenty it's like I have too much good stuff it's like where do you even start and how lucky I am and also like it's like becomes a burden because there's all these new things that you want 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 it's like but read this great stuff that's here well part of it though is that there are different books for different times and so I mean I love I mean I just finished reading on the come up by Angie Thomas Mm. I enjoyed it so much and I was reading it in the perfect way I was reading it on a flight from New York to LA Perfect. So just to have a juicy story and, you know, but then often in my house, I read poetry every day. You do. And it's wonderful to read a poem, let's say, in the morning, the way that I might pull a tarot card or light a Mm -hmm. candle in the morning or right before bed. Something that I don't necessarily need a narrative thread, but it just gives me an image to kind of think about or walk with. So I read that. I'm I'm reading this book, um, Color Theory right now. I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead from your, it's from okay. your questions. Don't worry. <laughs> but this is, I just literally got this in the mail today and I'm super about it. It's this book edited by Maya Gomez and Vreni Michelini Castillo. And it's about women and gender nonconforming working artists of color who are just 
offering reflections on their work as artists. See, books like that really just inspire me. And this is a small press, Wolfman Press from Oakland. And I just feel like, you know what? I want to support this work. People just putting out their hearts. And it's Mm. hybrid. There are images. So there are different kinds of books for different moments. And then as a teacher, I'm also reading books, thinking about teaching them. Right. Yeah? Yeah. Although the book that I just, I think the last great book that I really recommend to folks, it's called No Archive Will Restore You by Julietta Singh. Okay. And it's, I mean, see, the thing about it, I like unusual books, books that are critical and creative or a little bit hybrid or a little strange and... I mean, in this, and Julieta Singh is a scholar, and so she has this big scholarly book. And then there's this other book that's sort of telling her secrets. And it's about her body and her fluids and her family and history and her love affairs mm. and text messages. And it's a skinny little book, <laughs> and it's really smart. I really liked it a lot. And it's very unusual. I bet that everybody comes to you for book recommendations. Do you know that people don't? And that's why it was so great when when you gave me some questions to think about. I realized that I think that, I mean, my family thinks my aunt, before she passed away, she said, oh, your books are so scholarly. Nobody even knows Uh, what what it is that you're reading. But Or I like weird books. Um, What's a weird book to you? Because that's pretty subjective. It's true. And I I mean, and I say weird with great fondness. Yeah, of course. I think my books are weird books. I like books that are kind of uncategorizable. Okay. okay? (laughs) Uncategorizable. You can edit out some of the ways that (laughs) I didn't say that right before. Which is, you know what I think is a weird book? A weird book. At the beginning of Swallow the Fish, I tell a story about a book. Maybe this is a book that did really affect me in childhood. It was Diane Duane's book, How to Be a Wizard. And what happened is that a girl is running away from a bully at the very beginning of the book. She runs into the library and she's hiding and she just is running her finger across books on a shelf. And then a book bites her finger (laughs) and she's like, what the heck, you know? And then she pulls this book down and it's, it looks like it should be in the series, you know, how to be a doctor, how to be a pilot, but it's how to be a wizard. Mm. That experience that idea of coming into a space of books, whether it's an actual bookstore or looking online or flipping through a catalog and seeing something that makes you go, hey, wait a minute, what's that? That's a weird book. Mm. A book that you didn't even know you wanted. Yeah. Mm, I yeah. love that. How do you pick what book you're going to read next? Mm. Or does the book bite your finger? Sometimes the book bites my finger. I mean, it's so funny because um, No Archive Will Restore You was the first book that I picked up after I took a month off from buying new books. And something about the description of it, something about the title, and that was a book that I bought online, so I didn't even have it in my hand. Sometimes, really, if I'm in a bookstore, I was just in the McNally Jackson bookstore on Prince Street in New York, and I was reading from Experiments in Joy, and I said to myself, you know what, don't hold your hand out on this show, because something, Mm -hmm. you'll feel it. Next thing you know, you're going to have five new books Mm -hmm. in your purse. But... um, I think it's what my mind is thinking about, what I want to dream about, what I'm thinking about making in the studio and performance, what I'm talking about, that that in court. And then also on an affective level, do I, am I open to crying? Am I open to laughing? Mm-hmm. Um, do I want to read about love? Do I really not want to read about love? You know, I think right. it's a, it's an intuitive decision. Right. What about genres? Are there any that you love or that you avoid? I love poetry. 
I, I love a nice juicy story as well. Um, plot or character or what? What's a juicy story to you? A juicy story for me is plot driven. Okay. Although I do love, like right now I'm halfway through Sphinx by Angareta, who is this um, French writer in the Ulipo group where they had used all these constraints. But the constraint in this novel, it's a love story where it's never clear the gender of the two people who are in the couple. That's dope. And it is. (laughs) I know Jeanette Winterson had a book called Written on the Body that that had a similar kind of conceit, I think. But this book, as I'm reading it, it really could, I mean, at any moment, it Mm. could go in all these different directions. And so it's, it's very rich. But that was a gift. And so sometimes, I mean, people give me books often. I'm so thankful. And I have really awesome writer friends. So I read their books when they come out and mm-hmm. try to support them. But yeah, what is, how do I pick? I let my heart pick for me. Do you have a favorite book gift? Some, a gift, a book that was gifted to you that stands out? Well, I definitely, I mean, that book that I just mentioned was mm-hmm. a gift. I think my favorite book gift is the last book gift I got. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I know. Zeta just gave me Freshwater by Aquaiki and okay. Macy. Have you read that yet? I'm not. You're the third person in 24 hours to mention that book to me. I'm so excited. So I can't must, wait to read that. Yeah. That's on my list. Um, yeah. A favorite book that people, my friend Lewis Wallace has given me some awesome books. He gave me a book by Jhumpa Lahiri. Mm. Yeah. I mean, maybe... You know what book might be my favorite book gift? It was my mother. She gave me How to Survive Writing Your Dissertation. I enjoyed that. (laughs) (laughs) And then after it was over, I passed it on to the next person. Like, you know what? I did this here. You take this. It worked out. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Do you have any favorite books on performance or like, no, that's the full question. Do you have any favorite books on performance? I do. I really like My Body, The Buddhist by Deborah Hay. Um, I love the books of Coco Fusco, um, English is Broken Here, or A Field Guide for Female Interrogators. I mean, she is, um, along with Adrienne Piper, whose books, Out of Order, Out of Sight, were super important for me as I was developing my performance practice. They both are women of color who have academic training and also strongly identify as artists and have broken a lot of ground. And I mm. think writing their work really inspired me. I think Ralph Lemon's books as well. I think his book Geography was really important. And just trying to document what does it really take to make a performance? I do think when you read about performance, it helps you go appreciate what you're seeing when mm-hmm. you're seeing live art. So those are some books that really come to mind. I think... My own book, Swallow the Fish, I would recommend. I mean, and I recommend it because I'm proud of it. And also because I wrote it to fill a gap. Right. You know what I'm saying? And so especially in terms of um, figurative, nonlinear, embodied um, art practice, especially by a woman of color, I think Swallow the Fish, there aren't that many books like that. Mm -hmm. And so I would definitely recommend that. What was the last book that made you laugh? I loved On the Come Up. I think okay. that it made me laugh for sure. She was very witty, even even though there were some weighty themes. Yeah. Okay. What about make you to make you cry? I had a few. I mean, I'm not a big crier. Okay. But I feel like I I did have the it did get me in some moments on the the, the on is it just the come up? On no, the it's come on the up. come up. It is on the yeah. come up. But another book I think that actually moved me emotionally, Dirty River by Leah Lakshmi Peeps Nasamran Singha. 
I love that book. I um, it's a memoir, and it's about she. It's I think that it's a a brown femme of color dreams her way home. Mm. And Leah Lakshmi also just recently had a book that came out called um, Disability Justice Care Work is the name of that book. And so she's she's really powerful. Yeah. I like that. What about a book that made you angry? And I know there's different kinds of anger at books, so you can decide. Well, there's a book that by, well, first of all, if Beale Street could talk, which also could be, I, that was on the short list for two books I love, but I feel like that's gotten so much mm-hmm. absolutely deserved visibility deserved. lately that's that right. I wanted to big up, you know, yeah. Asher Leif. <laughs> but, um, and also let people know, like, I read broadly, friends, yes. but um, that book gets me. Yeah. Yeah. Just the injustice yeah. of the situation, but also the love mm-hmm. that those characters, Tish and Fani, feel for one another and the mm-hmm. family. family. It does bring tears to my eyes. Yeah. I like that. What about a book where you felt like you learned a lot? Well, I want to say that I learned so much from the tarot books that I consult. So let me take it here for a second. Let's go. This is new for me. Yes. And so um, I use a deck that my friend Chris Mason gave me called the Slow Holler deck. It's made by um, people of color and or queer people from the South. And it reinterprets a lot of the kind of European patriarchal iconography and turns it into something a little more expansive. And I love that deck. The artwork is beautiful and I love the book. Okay. The writing is really amazing. And then after I pull and I look and I read the writing in that book, I consult two other tarot books often. Wow. And that's um, Michelle T's book, which I think is Everyday Tarot, and Jessica, Crips- Jessica Crispin's Tarot of the Creatives. Okay, so let me ask you this because I know nothing about this. So this will be new for me. Oh. Do you – this is not – so I don't like anything that is like – magical that is like i'm like anti-magic but you love books which they're magical but not like magical books i like i don't know no but books themselves yes books are yes i like that kind of magic right but you don't want to get yeah like i don't like a magician i don't like you to tell me about the future i don't want like i i'm barely okay with like my horoscope barely (laughs) i can relate to my sign but like i'm not into it so you have to tell me exactly what that means. So you pull a tarot card for yourself uh-huh. or do you do it for other people? Generally speaking, I pull for myself and and I will pull one card or often I'll pull three. Okay. Could, which could be... And then be... you decide which one you like more. You're like, this feels right. The princess <laughs> is good. I don't want the devil. Well, it could be past, present, future. It oh. could be um, question... It could be question energy that's tr- that's trying to block the answer to the question and then the answer to the question there's mm. all these different ways to read okay. it but what i like about tarot as opposed to some other practices for me it's not about telling the future so okay. it's not divination it's raising an image and often asking a question of me or raising a possibility to to think about it's almost like giving myself a quote of the day. Okay. It's like intentional or like intention setting kind of thing. More. I use it more for intention setting and checking in like, wait a minute, what, what am I see? Am I going to walk through the world in a correct way? I see. And then, so what are the book, what's the book part of it? The book helps to give more information about the iconography. And what I like about it too, is that in fact, at the AWP writers conference that I just was at, there was a panel, which I couldn't go to because I was, it was, it, conflicted with my own panel, but 
um, they were talking about using tarot to write. Oh, wow. Because it's a big plot. It's the story of the fool's journey to enlightenment. And so there are all mm-hmm. these steps on the way. And so if you mix those steps around, you've got storylines. Got it. Yeah. All right. All right. I'm open to tarot. I just, it's, you know, magical, which is my nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I went on a whole rant on about magic um, like a few months ago. Magic terrifies me. I'm not into it. But so all of those things, all of that, I'm like, ooh. But consider reading Lev Grossman's The Magicians. That's a great book. Okay. I'll consider reading anything, I guess, is the truth. Oh, this I want to know this about you because you read so much. Yeah. Is there any particular book that you're proud of having read? I think I'm pretty proud that when I was 15, I read The Unabridged Les Miserables. Oh, okay. In French? No, okay. I'm just wondering because you speak French. I do. I was lazy. And you know, it's funny because I did read in school and then on my own sections of Les Miserables, but really I read Germinal by Zola in French, and that's a beautiful book, actually. And that's not a book that I don't know that many people... I've never even heard of it. Well, that's about minors. In okay. France. I mean, and, that's, and Zola, is all, he's always like taking you to the the insides of places and showing you these different social classes. And he did this book about um, the very first department store in Paris. I mean, he's interested in almost like occupations. But mm. Les Mis, though, that's a thick book. Mm-hmm. And see, I think that I, if I... It's about time and the kind of immersive quality and being in it and really seeing how a plot unfolds. And I think that something has happened to my relationship to time. And maybe that's why, even with Marlon James's book, I think that I was like, oh, I don't, somehow or another. And that these poems, they have a different, they work in mm-hmm. a different way with mm-hmm. time. But we'll get into that next mm-hmm. week. Yeah. Have you seen the musical, Lehman? Yes. I was like, but see, I saw it in high school. And then I was like, I want to. And I had read the small one, mm-hmm. the small version. And then I was like, I want to read the big one. Oh, really? Yeah. It's so coming it was, to L.A. Is it? They're, bring, they brought it, they're bringing, they're bringing it, back? it back. It's at the Pentagious soon. Wow. I hate the musical. Yeah. It's I too, mean, it's, like, it's cheesy. But wah, I think wah. when I, I mean. <laughs> but if you've read the book I and you love Cats the book. I saw Cats when I was well, in the 10th grade. I love grade. Cats. Do you love Cats? And I that's love from T.S. Eliot's. Um, Poetry. Yeah, I know, but I've never read the poems. I love cats. I, I just can't. There's not enough dancing in Les Mis for me. It's mm, just, it's I, just I need the dancing in a musical. I need the petticoats. I need the costumes. I need to see a pointed foot. Like, I need <laughs> that. I mean, there are petticoats in Les Mis, but, like, I need that magic. And Les Mis is, like, not magic to me. No, it's definitely social commentary. And there's, yeah. like... I don't know. There's a lot of reasons I don't like it. Also, I have a deep voice, so I like when there's a really strong alto part for the woman and not in Les Mis. They all sing like... It's high. It's high. I can't relate. You know, whatever, the sad girl on my own. Yeah, no, the other one, the sad... Eponine. She has all those high notes at the end of that song, so I can't sing along to that. So I'm like, what garbage. (laughs) (laughs) Musicals are about me, obviously. Um, I want to talk to you about my favorite book assigned in high school. Yes, tell me about your favorite book assigned in high school. I want to say The Return of the Native... By Thomas Hardy. I've never even heard of that. I don't even know if they teach that anymore. Mm. But I, what I liked about that book, <laughs> it was Mrs. Jones 
Barbara Jones, wherever you are, I want you to know I have never forgotten. The way she taught that book, she mm. was like, passion, girls. Mm. You stay Shavai represents pure passion. And I thought, I want to represent pure passion. Yes. And Sign I actually up. loved Madame Bovary and Mrs. Smella. See, modern world literature, that's the thing I think that these books, I mean, I'm Madame Bovary, that knocked me out. Have you read that? Mm-mm. See, these books, they, it was... She wanted to have an amazing life. And I was mm-hmm. a girl that wanted to have an amazing life. Mm. But then she couldn't handle it. And all around her were things that she thought were mediocre. But then I came to understand later that it was it was the way that she was treating people and the way that she was seeing her life that was mediocre. But at the time, when I was 14 years old, I thought, oh, what if you want to have an amazing life and you mm-hmm. can't have one? Mm. What if everyone around you is that quiet desperation? Mm. And then I was reading Jim Harrison's The Woman Lit by Fireflies about the same time. Have you ever read that? Mm. And that was sort of suburban Michigan white ladies that were. So that was the first time I I started to understand that these classic stories could have these contemporary resonances. Yeah. And then that actually leads to Maud Martha, one of my favorite books by Gwendolyn Brooks. Just thinking about what is an inner life. I think Mm -hmm. that. Somehow or another, there was something about that book and some of the other things that we read that made me think, wait, wait, wait. Literature isn't just about what happens or reading isn't just about Mm -hmm. events. It's about thinking and feeling and charting this inner landscape. Totally. Well, what would you assign in high school? I mean, I know you teach people now. Let me tell you what I would really assign in high school. I'm going to keep it all the way real, everybody. There's a book called Yes Means Yes, and it is edited by Jacqueline Freeman and Jacqueline Valente. Okay. Jessica Valente and Jacqueline Friedman. And it is a book about consent and ending rape culture. Let's go. And you know what? I just think that so many lives would be changed and so many shenanigans Mm -hmm. would be nipped right in the Mm -hmm. bud if... All people of all genders, and I'm talking about female identified, male identified, gender queer, everybody started talking about consent way back early right. from right. the very from beginning. From the very beginning. From the like, very yes, beginning. no, please, and consent. And that no <laughs> means no is not enough. It's got to be yes means yes. You got to have a non coerced yes, mm-hmm. and that everybody has a right to pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yes means yes. Look it up. I'm into it. That is my kind of jam. Okay, we'll do this one more question and then we'll be done and we'll be back next week. So tell me, if you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would it be? Pinocchio or Dumbo? <laughs> Perfect. I. That's amazing. That's it. We're going to end that there. Um, next week, we'll be back. I'm going to fuck this up. So here we go. We're talking about Wild Beauty by... N- do it for me. Intozake Shange. Intozake Shange. I'm going to get this right. Intozake Shange. Um, I do, I'll tell you this. I once read somewhere that you shouldn't make fun of people who mispronounce words because it means that they learn the word from reading it. That's awesome. Isn't that beautiful? So like I see the name and I know the name, but I'm like, I can't say it. Intozake Shange because I've never heard it out loud. Well, have you ever read... Um Strunk and White's Elements of Style. No. They have a rule. It was this tiny little book that in the 10th grade, everybody had to read for writing. And it said, if you don't know how to say a name, say it loudly. Oh. Which is the, the wildest advice okay. ever. But it was so we're just, doing yeah. Wild Beauty by... <laughs> by Intozake Shange. Shange. Yeah. And we'll do that next week. And... This is Gabrielle Seville. Happy Poetry Month. Oh, yeah, and it's Poetry Month. Yay. Okay, we'll see you guys on the stacks. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you all for listening. And thank you to Gabrielle Seville for joining us. Don't forget to pick up her books, Swallow the Fish and Experiments in Joy, wherever you get your books. We'll be back next week to discuss Wild Beauty by Ntisake Shange for the Stacks Book Club. Remember to get your book recommendations read on the air by sending an email to askingthestacks at gmail.com. For more from the Stacks, follow us on our social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join the Stacks Pack and get inside access to the show, like our virtual book club and more, go to patreon.com slash the Stacks. And for one-time contributions, you can always go to paypal.me slash thestackspod. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the podcast. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas, and I will see you in the stacks. <laughs>